Last week we completed, uh, finally completed Romans chapter 8. And uh, so if my math is correct, today we start chapter 9. <coughs> so, um, but why don't you take a moment and just kind of look down at those last... Uh, uh, eight or nine verses or so of chapter nine, or chapter eight, excuse me, and uh, see what can you, what do you remember, particularly from the last two or three verses uh, that we've talked about about uh, that whole section of Romans eight, and particularly uh, those last three verses that we talked about last week, verses thirty-seven through thirty-nine. Do you remember anything that? Uh, particularly stood out to you or that you want to bring up and and uh, mention at this point by way of review. One thing we talked about verse 37, all these things we overwhelming and conquer. It's not just merely surviving. It's just, uh, we actually are victorious. Yeah, yeah. And we're not just victorious. We're overwhelmingly victorious. We are hyper-victorious. Okay. What does Paul have in mind when he talks about being overly victorious? I mean, I thought if you were victorious, you were victorious, right? So, what does he have in mind when he talks about being overly victorious or overwhelmingly victorious? There's no doubt. There wasn't an accident. It wasn't necessarily God. Okay. Okay, so that's one thing. It's... Uh, it's not just kind of barely squeaking through. We've seen some victories like that in various things in our life, don't we? When you, you know, when you're rooting for a sports team and they win by just one point or whatever, you know, and that's good enough. A win is a win, they say. But uh, when it comes to our victory in suffering and trial or through suffering and trial, it's not a matter of just kind of squeezing through and barely making it. It's much more than that. In what ways is it much more than that? Sometimes it feels like that. That's right. That's right. It often does. And sometimes we wonder if we have made it through. (laughs) I mentioned a couple things that I think Paul has in mind. And one is that uh, the result, as Paul talks about in his own case in 2 Corinthians, the result of his suffering, not only did he manage to get through it, but his suffering resulted in life in other people. That when we suffer and we, and we come through it uh, by God's grace and we triumph by God's grace, as other people see that, as they observe that and witness that in our lives, it instills in their own hearts the, their faith and their courage. And, and so life is the result of the, as, if we can, as Paul said, if we can use the word death in our own circumstances, our death results in the life of other people. So that's one way in which we overwhelmingly conquer. We not only come through it, but other people are benefited tremendously from it as we go through it. And then what else? How about what happens in the end? I'm not sure if this is what you meant, but right? just thinking it honors God and glorifies God. Okay, great. And that's no small thing, is it? That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. But what I, was ha- what I had in mind... Is, excuse me? Nothing can ever separate us from, love, from God's love. That's true. And we'll get into that some more in just a minute. But what particularly I had in mind, what I mentioned last week, is the glory that is to come. That the suffering that we encounter, the difficulties that we encounter in this life, it's not just a matter that we go through them and that we manage to get through them, but actually as we encounter suffering, as Paul makes very clear in Corinthians, the suffering that we go through, the suffering that we experience is actually building up for us. It's making a deposit for us of a greater and greater and greater glory. So the more you suffer this week, just cheer up because that means you're going to get more in heaven, right? Well, that may seem trite in some sense, but that is in fact exactly what Paul says, that this present suffering that we go through cannot be compared, he says, with the glory that is to be revealed 
uh, in us and through us. So, uh, what else? We uh, uh, Chuck just brought this up. He talks about how uh, suffering cannot separate us from the love of God, and he lists he, he lists a number of things there. He actually has two lists. One is the that first list of seven in verses uh, thirty. Uh, uh, well, in verse 35, and then his list of 10 things beginning in verse 38. Uh, so he, he, he gives us these lists of things, and some of them are like people or persons. He talks about angels and principalities and powers. So we would think of typically of people uh, or, or persons or beings, and we can imagine how uh, even though it can't happen, and Paul assures us it can't happen, we could imagine how someone might be inclined to think that there's these demons out here or there's my adversary here, my uh, my human adversary, and I could kind of imagine how perhaps they might be able to separate me from God's love. But the, <clears throat> but the question that I wrestled with, and I brought it up last week, is how how is it that we might imagine that circumstances things that we suffer, not necessarily related to people, but just things that we suffer, how is it that we might imagine that they could possibly separate us from the love of God when we know that when God sees somebody suffering, it actually moves him to compassion. God is moved by that. And so when I'm going through suffering, how is it that I could imagine that my suffering might separate me from the love of God? Okay, okay. When we go through difficulties, when we go through tremendous suffering, it it oftentimes it doesn't affect God's attitude towards us, but it oftentimes affects our attitude towards God, doesn't it? We oftentimes uh, think things about God that maybe aren't true, or uh, maybe uh, even just bad things about God that we might think that He's being unfair, that He's being unkind that he's being unfaithful. These are the kind of thoughts we have about God. And the assurance that we have from Paul is that as we go through those circumstances, even as we struggle with those attitudes, those things will not separate us from God's love. I was really uh, challenged and encouraged this week. Uh, I was... uh, uh, I, I, I don't read it regularly, but I do uh, periodically read uh, Kelsey's blog as she's struggling through her whole situation with cancer. And uh, and I was reading uh, the entry that she made last Sunday when we were talking about these things. <clears throat> and it was a very powerful uh, a blog, and, and she was very forthright. She was very honest, and she... Uh, uh, she said right up the front, she says, well, you know, I want to warn you people, I'm going to be very honest here. Uh, and, uh, and, and then she just expressed her feelings, the things she was going through and the thoughts she was having to struggle with as she wrestles with and tries to get, uh, get the best of this cancer. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's kind of a hard read because when people are, other people are suffering, you know, we don't always want to hear what they have to say, right? Uh, because it isn't always pretty. And, uh, and so she was sharing. She was just sharing from her heart. And she was talking about some of these thoughts that she had. And, and she acknowledged that, they, that they were, some of them were not right thoughts. They were, she used the word sinful thoughts or sin in reference to some of them. She talked about that. And it was actually encouraging to me because it was an illustration to me of this very thing we're talking about. Because she goes through and she talks about all those things and then as she gets down to the end, uh, she, be, she begins to talk about how she's experiencing God's love and, and God's support and how God is helping her through this time of struggling. And, and, and I just thought it was a beautiful illustration of the very thing we talked about last week. That we go through these circumstances and these circumstances bring... Uh, if you will, kind of bring to the surface the dross of our hearts and the sin of our hearts as they did with Job, uh, who we, we know did not suffer because he sinned, but he did sin because he suffered. And, and so that dross comes to the surface and God exposes that. But even that, Paul says, does not separate us from God's love. And that's really encouraging to know because 
I've been through, as you have, many times of suffering in my life, and I haven't always handled them really well, you know. And the encouraging thing to me is I didn't freak God out, and it didn't take him by surprise, and I'm still surrounded in his love, you know. So those are some of the things that we learned about last week. Well, we have a a ton of stuff to talk about today as we get started in Romans chapter 9. And uh, so let's let's begin there. Let's just read the first five verses. uh, And then I want to go back and think a little bit about uh, about uh, these next uh, uh, three chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11, and how we how we want to approach them in order to try to understand them. And then we'll look at these five verses in more detail. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my uh, brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Okay. Well, he starts out then just right off the bat and he begins to talk about this great suffering that he's going through, this great burden uh, that is on his heart. And what is that burden? Okay. He has a tremendous burden for Israel. He has this, tr- uh, and he specifies that he calls them first his brethren, and then he specifies specifically that he's talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh. Okay. Typically, when Paul uses the word brethren or brothers, uh, he's referring to believers in Christ. But here, in this case, he's referring to his physical relatives, if you will, his kinsmen after the flesh. He's talking about uh, the Jewish people. He refers to them here as Israel. Okay, And this is his introduction then to the next three chapters. Paul has made a, in, in one sense, Paul has made a major shift now. He's been uh, all the way through Romans uh, 8. He's been following a certain line of logic, and I would suggest, and as we go on in these following chapters, we'll see that he's continuing to develop uh, the the ideas or the themes that he set out uh, to set before us back in chapter 1. So chapters 9, 10, 11 don't change that, but they are clearly uh, a shift in focus or a shift in emphasis from the things he's just been talking about in chapter 8. In chapter 8, he's been talking about what, what it's like to be a believer. He's talking about life in the Spirit. He's talking about uh, what it's like to have the indwelling Spirit uh, in us and how, we, how that affects us and how we live out our lives. And then he, towards the end of the chapter, he gets dealing with this whole issue of the suffering and the difficulties uh, that we go through in life and how the Spirit enables us and uh, to go through that and empowers us and intercedes for us and, and how we can't be separated from God's love. And then just kind of all of a sudden here, he, once he's kind of reached his grand conclusion about our security in God's love, then he, he makes this uh, apparently radical shift and he starts talking about his kinsmen Israel. And, and it's real tempting at this point to kind of turn him off. Okay, because after all, this is not an issue for us, right? We're all Gentiles. It's been a Gentile church for nearly 2,000 years now. The whole, issue, the whole Jewish issue has been resolved. It's been settled. And so really, these things really are not particularly of interest or importance to us, right? So it's very easy for us at this point to kind of dismiss Paul a little bit, to perhaps not take chapters 9, 10, 11 as weighty and as important as the rest of Romans. And in fact, some commentators do that. I mean, it's not to suggest that that they don't believe that it's the Word of God or that it's important to read and understand, 
but oftentimes commentators will refer to chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans as kind of an appendix. Something that Paul just kind of tacked on because he had this difficult problem that he needed to deal with, which was the question of the Jews. And, he, and, and as we've already discovered, this was an issue for the church in Rome because it was by now a predominantly Gentile church, but it had a significant minority of Jews in the church. And there was this apparent tension between the Jews and the Gentiles and, and how, how they were going to do church and what was the gospel they were going to preach. And so this is an issue for Rome, uh, for the church in Rome. And so Paul needs to deal with this issue. So we have Romans chapter 8, the theology, uh, excuse me, the book of Romans. We have the theology, Romans 1 through 8. And we have the practical application of the theology in Romans 12 through 16, which uh, uh, fits very nicely with the pattern of some of Paul's other epistles like Ephesians and Colossians where he sets forth the theology in the first part of the epistle and then in the latter part of the epistle he gives kind of the practical application of that theology in our everyday lives. And we have that in Romans with chapters 1 through 8 and chapters 12 through 16, but we have this kind of anomaly of chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so it's real tempting to think, well, this really is not central to Paul's argument in Romans. This is not really uh, uh, rudimentary theology here. This is just something that Paul needed to get to clear the air in his day and in his situation, partly because of the situation of the church in Rome and partly because of people's misperceptions of him and the gospel he preached. Hence, we have Romans 9 through 11. And it's kind of a, an excursus or an appendix that's just kind of stuck in there. Okay. Well, I have, uh, I have uh, considerable difficulty with that view of Romans 9 through 11. And one of them is, uh, is typically when you have, uh, not always with an excursus, but particularly with an appendix, when you have an appendix to a writing, where does it come? It comes at the end, right? It, you know, it's, the, the, because the writer wants to get the bulk, the important stuff communicated, and then there's this kind of, other stuff that's related, but it's not central to what I've got to say, so I put it at the end. Okay, But Paul has not put Romans 9 through 11 at the end. Paul has put it right smack in the middle. He's put, he has put it right at the end of this section of theology. Okay, And, and so uh, there has been a tendency sometimes with uh, Christian commentators, as they say, to, to view it kind of as an appendix. But in more, more recent evangelical scholarship, there's been more of a recognition more recently that this really is central to what Paul is trying to communicate in Romans. Okay. This really is central to this whole question of the gospel, which is what Paul sets out in chapter 1. He says, uh, he says you know, in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, he talks about the gospel and and, and, and this is the gospel that he's getting ready to present and he's getting ready to set it out. Because remember, Paul is getting ready to go to Rome and he's hoping that the Romans, we talked all about this at the beginning, he's hoping that the Romans, he's wanting the Romans to kind of be his slingshot and to shoot him on to Spain. He needs their support to get him to Spain, but he's not going to have their support. He's not going to have their wholehearted support unless they wholeheartedly agree with the gospel that he preaches. And so it's imperative for him that the Romans understand in, in, in thorough detail what is this gospel I preach. And one of the really important issues, and we don't tend to think about it in this term anymore, uh, but we need to. One of the important issues about the gospel Paul preaches is the issue of the question of the Jews. Where do they fit into this whole thing that God is doing in the gospel? Where do the Jews fit in what we call salvation history? Are they just something that happened way back in the past and we've gone on from there? They are no longer relevant. And what God has done with them in the past and what He is 
doing now, if he is doing anything, or what he intends to do in the future, really is not relevant to us because we are, for all intents and purposes now, a Gentile phenomenon. We are, there are, of course, some Jewish believers. There are many Jewish believers. But in relationship to Gentiles, they are in a very distinct minority. It is a Gentile church at this point. Okay. So, so do we, is, is that all there is now? You know, it's just, you know, some old stories back then that we can look at about Moses and Noah and all those guys and, and David and, and Joshua and we can get some cool lessons from them. But really, that's all just ancient history. Or is there something about the Jews that is directly pertinent to the gospel that Paul preached and that you and I are responsible to be defenders of? I think it's one of the challenges when you're in a New Testament church you tend to not put a whole lot of stock in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. The challenge what you set yourself up for is you don't really understand why things happen in the New Testament church because all the Old Testament is a, a shadow yeah. of everything. It's basically laying the foundation for yeah. why Jesus had to come or Jesus had to die. Um, one of the things I find most interesting is and as Ronnie studied Revelation, I studied Revelation before by myself, and it made no sense to me. But until I really got into the Pentateuch, um, uh-huh. Revelation makes a lot more sense when you, when you understand Genesis uh, Deuteronomy. Yeah, good, great. Well, so that that's one reason why we tend to kind of set Romans 9 and 11 aside kind of a little bit. But there's, there are other reasons why we do, and one of them is Romans 9, 10, and 11 presents us with some very difficult issues. Presents us with some very difficult questions. I was just kind of trying to jot down a few this morning uh, that, that come to our mind as we go through Romans 9 through 11. And, and, uh, and one of the questions that comes up in Romans 9 through 11 is what really is the role of faith in salvation. Is faith really the central issue of salvation? Or is faith instead uh, something that God just does in those whom He has elected and chosen and they've been and, and He's regenerated them and so He gives them faith and faith is always associated with salvation but it but it, but it is not uh, it is not the determining factor of salvation. So what is the what is the role of faith in salvation? Is a question we'll have to wrestle with in Romans nine through eleven. Another one is why did Israel not attain the righteousness of God? Remember, he sets out in Romans uh, chapter one to talk about the righteousness of God as it's revealed in the gospel. And what we discover as we're going through 9 through 11 is that Israel did not attain that righteousness. And the question is, what went wrong? What happened with Israel? And really, this goes back to the question that I left you hanging with last week when we finally finished Romans chapter 8 about the security of the believer and how we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But then we have this kind of big elephant in the closet. And that big elephant in the closet is, if nothing can separate us about, from the love of God, then what about Israel? Because it clearly seems that here we have a people who at once were loved by God, who now seem to be rejected by Him. And so we have this enormous problem. And if we can't resolve this question of why Israel has not attained the righteousness of God. Why Israel now seems to be out of favor with God, so to speak. If we can't resolve that question, then how much confidence can we have? If God could not continue to love His ancient people, how sure can we be that He will continue to love His new people, the Gentiles? So this is a question we'll have to wrestle with. And, and then we have this simple little question. What does God mean by Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated? 
It's a quote from the Old Testament that Paul repeats here in Romans 9 through 11. And it raises all kinds of questions for us. These are things we'll have to face. Another question that comes to our mind when, when we are reminded in Romans chapter 9 through 11, it's not by the will of man or et cetera, et cetera, but it's by God or by the will of God. The question comes up, what is the role, if any, of man's will in salvation? This is, these are the questions that, that Romans 9 puts before us. And if that one's not difficult enough for you, how about does the phrase vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, which we have in this passage, does this teach the doctrine of what we call double predestination? Double predestination, of course, we, we all know what predestination is. We studied it in chapter 8. Uh, some view uh, predestination in a little bit different sense in the sense that they believe that certain people were just predestined by God from the very outset, from the very creation, if you will, they were predestined by God, independent of anything that they would ever do, independent of their own will or their own faith. They were just simply predestined by God to heaven to be saved. Okay. Well, uh, the flip side of that, and not everybody who holds to that view of predestination holds to the flip side, but in one sense... The flip side is kind of the inevitable flip side. <laughs> if you're going to have a coin, you've got to have two sides, okay? And the flip side of predestination is double predestination, which means that not only has God predetermined, created some people to live forever in His, in His presence and in His bliss and in His glory, but that He also, from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, had determined that he would create some people to be eternally punished in hell. It's called double predestination. It's a very, uh, very predominant, very common element within Calvinism. Okay, is the idea of double predestination. Not all Calvinists hold to it, but many, I would suggest most leading Calvinists do. Great minds like Jonathan Edwards and others preach the doctrine of double predestination. Does Romans 9, when he talks about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, does that teach the doctrine of double predestination? And then, we've already alluded to this a little bit, is Israel, since she has stumbled, since she has fallen, is she no longer relevant in salvation history going forward from this point. Is, is Israel just kind of an irrelevant issue to us now? We can just kind of block it out of our minds and forget about the whole thing about Israel because they have stumbled. These are some of the things that Romans 9, chapter 9 through 11 confronts us with and that we have to think about. And these are hard questions and Christians come down on different sides of virtually all of these questions that I talk about. And so, because Romans, these three chapters of Romans present us with such difficult questions, one of the really easy things to do with Romans chapters 9 through 11 is what? Don't study it. it. If you don't study it, you don't have to deal with these kind of questions, right? (laughs) So, that's exactly what some people's approach is. And one of the One of the reasons why I love doing exegetical study, expository teaching, like we do where we just pick a book or a passage and we just go through it, is you don't get to squirm out of the hard passages. You know, if you can't understand them, at least you have to stand up in front of people and say, I don't get it, you know. But you don't get to just kind of duck them, you know. And, and that's one of the nice things about doing book studies and things like that, is you come across these hard questions and, 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 and God forces you to face them and deal with them and pray about them and ask Him, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand. What do you mean when you say you hated Esau? I don't understand that. You know, what do you mean when you talk about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I don't understand that, God. 
and we can pray and we can ask God and oftentimes He will give us an answer and many times He will say, well, that one you're not ready for yet. You know, that comes in the 12th grade and you're only in the 1st grade, you know. I am, uh, I am not at all surprised when I pray and I ask God for an answer to a question that I'm confronting in Scripture and I don't get an answer right away. What I have seen after many, many years is that the answers do come, but they often come slowly. What really surprises me is how oftentimes when I pray, I get an answer within an hour or two. Yeah, so very oftentimes as I'm dealing with a passage that we're going to confront here in class and uh, 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 some verses or a chapter that we're doing and, and I'm wrestling with and I'm going, God, I just don't understand this. And, you know, I'm just kind of assuming I'm going to have to say to the class, well, you know, I don't have an answer to this part of it or I don't understand this, you know. And I don't have any problem with saying that. But what is surprising to me is how oftentimes just in the course of just waiting on him and praying about it, just all of a sudden, you know, a light goes on. It happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I forget what it was. But it was just some little, it, was, it wasn't a major detail or whatever, but it was, just, it was just a little thing that wasn't clear in my mind. And I was out doing as I often do on Saturday, usually do on Saturdays. And I go out and I think through, meditate, and talk my way through the passage and pray about the difficult parts and that sort of thing. And just all of a sudden, bing, the light came on. And I went, oh, wow. That was cool, you know. And so sometimes God does that. Well, if we don't ever study the hard passages, we'll never have that blessing, will we? I usually find that the answer to prayer comes, you know, from asking for revelation or something. When I'm studying something else, because I'm studying something else, I don't even realize that that's part of the key. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So, so these are some of the things that we're going to deal with as we go through Romans. 9 through 11, and we're going to try and tackle them all just head on. And you may not always agree with my conclusions, uh, but at least we will have made an honest effort to understand what God is trying to say to us and what Paul is trying to communicate uh, in the chapters. Um, now, there are several different approaches that people take to these three chapters in Romans. And, and one very common way to look at the passage is that, uh, is that they are simply a discourse. They are Paul's discourse on the subject of individual predestination. Okay. So the tendency then is in reading, uh, when coming from this perspective, the tendency then in Romans chapters 9 through 11, as you're reading them, as you're studying them, the tendency is to just simply see that Paul is talking about how individual people, by God's sovereign choice, are predestined to salvation. Okay, and uh, and so of course, if that is your predisposition coming into the ch- into these chapters, uh, that will of course affect how you will uh, understand various passages and various verses within them. As I've already mentioned, some people see them simply as an appendix, whether it's talking about. Uh, the subject of individual predestination or whether it's talking uh, whether it's talking about Israel and salvation history or whatever it's really kind of an appendix it's really not central to what Paul is trying to communicate through Romans and if that is your view of course that will affect how you interpret individual passages within the within the chapters as we said, some people's approach is just abandon them. <laughs> I can't understand it, so why study it? And so we just kind of, we'll read them and we'll just kind of go, well, I don't understand that. And we'll get on to other things in Scripture which we do understand. And then another way, and the approach that I hope to take, is viewing them as an integral part of Paul's gospel and to the message of Romans as a whole. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to, as I approach these chapters, I'm going to try to ask myself and to ask you to think in with me on this. How, how does this relate to this whole thing that Paul is trying to communicate to the Roman Christians about the gospel that he preaches? Okay. And so that's the approach that I hope to take. It is, uh, thankfully, the approach that more and more scholars are taking. I'm not classifying myself with them. Uh, but it is thankfully an approach that more and more scholars are taking as more and more scholars are beginning to see how these chapters fit within the whole context of Romans, uh, of the entire book of Romans. 
there are, I would suggest, as we look at these chapters, uh, and, and these, of course, come from a uh, come from our overall view of biblical hermeneutics. How do we interpret all of Scripture? Uh, there are a couple primary interpretive issues that I want to keep in mind as I go through these chapters with you. Uh, you'll notice in the verses that I read to you this morning and that we'll look at more in more detail here in a few minutes, uh, that Paul brings up the subject of Israel. And he's speaking of Israel corporately. Okay, He talks, uh, as, it, as we go on, we're going to find out, he talks about how Israel is, is now kind of, uh, shall we say, out of favor with God or whatever. Uh, the question will come up in chapter, in verse 6, has God's word failed because Israel has, excuse me, as he says in another place, apparently stumbled, okay? Uh, what is important for us to realize is what Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 through 11 has to do with the corporate body of Israel. Israel as a whole. It is not chiefly about individuals. It is not primarily about individuals. It is primarily about this group of people. As we move on later in the three chapters, he will then expand it and begin to talk about another group of people, the Gentiles. Okay? But primarily, but he's doing so in relationship to the question of the Jews. What Paul is asking is where do the Jewish people, the Jews as an ethnic nation, not as a political nation, but the Jews as an ethnic group, as an ethnic nation, where do they fit into salvation history? To this thing that God is doing through the Gospel. Where do they fit in? This is the question of Romans 9-11. through Romans 9-11 through really is not about individual people. It's about God's faithfulness to His people, Israel. That's the question that Paul is dealing with. And so, as we go through and as we look at various points that Paul makes and passages that he pulls from the Old Testament and uses as quote, and he does many. In fact, Paul, Paul in all of his epistles has about uh, a little under 90 uh, exact, uh, quotes, direct quotes from the Old Testament. 27 of them, a third of them, are in these three chapters. So in all of Paul's epistles, he has 90-some quotes from the Old Testament, and a third of those come from these three chapters alone. So, uh, so as he pulls these quotes from the Old Testament, as he makes his points, as he uses his various illustrations, whether it's uh, the illustration of Jacob and Esau or Rebekah or, or the promises to Abraham, as he makes these, we have to keep in mind he's not talking, he's not using them to illustrate something about individuals. He's using them to illustrate something about a group of people and how that group of people fits into salvation history and what bearing that has on the gospel that he preaches. Okay, So that's the first interpretive principle we need to keep in mind. Now, just when we talk about a group of people and we talk about the characteristics or the phenomena of a group of people, that implies, of course, a bunch of individuals, right? So, for example, uh, who, what was the guy, Tocqueville, the guy from, from uh, France that came over in the 19th century and he traveled all through America and everything and he wrote this, this uh, great famous work on America and Americans and he described Americans and America and what we were like and how we were this religious people and all that sort of thing. Okay? Well, it's, it's a wonderful description of America as a group, as a unit. But you could never assume that what he described about Americans as a group was true of every single American. There were many Americans who were atheists. There were many Americans who weren't believers. There were many Americans who did not fit the profile that he describes. But you get, you get, the, uh, you get the profile by the 
adding together of all the individuals, right? So the point I'm making is that we can see to some degree in Romans 9 through 11, and we must see as we go through, individual issues. It's issues with individual people. But we need to keep in mind that he's trying to paint a broad picture. He's trying to paint a picture of a group. And so there will always be exceptions to that group. And Paul is going to paint for us a picture of Israel. But Paul himself is an exception to the picture he paints, right? He's going to paint for us a picture of a people who have walked away from God, who have rejected the Messiah, who, who have abandoned God, who have not trusted God, who have not walked by faith. That's the picture he's going to paint. But there are obviously many Jews who don't fit that picture. Paul himself is one of them. And so he's going to deal with what he calls the remnant. The minority within the majority. And so that's one of the things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about this remnant. Okay? Uh, the, uh, the other interpretive issue that we need to keep in mind is that, as I've said, what's at stake here is Paul's gospel. The gospel Paul preaches. When we say Paul's gospel, we mean the gospel, right? <clears throat> but in many ways, we think of it as Paul's gospel because he was the one who was out there and articulating in a way that nobody else was to the degree and with the elaborateness that Paul was. And, and of course, Paul came under a great deal of flack because there were many people who disagreed with him and so they called it Paul's gospel. We call it Paul's gospel today. But when we talk about Paul's gospel, we're not talking about something distinct from the truth of Scripture. We're not talking about something that's distinct from the gospel. Paul's gospel is the gospel. And, and so, the... The issue we need to keep in mind as we go through Romans 9 through 11 is that God, Paul's gospel tells us that God has chosen in his sovereign choice to save people based on their faith in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Is that not his gospel? His gospel is that salvation is by faith in the atoning work of Christ. Okay? This is God's sovereign choice. Now, there are many people who would argue with that. There are many people who would say, no, I think I should be saved because I live a good life. I think I should be saved because I was born into this particular group of people. And we're all really good people and we, you know, we all go to church and, you know, whatever. But God has made a choice and his choice is not to save people on the basis of their works, but rather to save those who have believed in his son. And that is the underlying thing. Paul has already established that emphatically in chapters three and four. So this is the gospel Paul preaches. How does Israel fit into that gospel? That, man, that God has chosen to save people on the basis of faith in the atoning work of Christ <clears throat> and not on the basis of their birth into the people of Israel. This is the question we have to ask ourselves. So these are a couple interpretive principles. We're dealing with a group of people and we're dealing with salvation by faith. These are two things that must guide us through Romans chapters 9, 10, 11. There are three uh, primary questions that come to mind in the passage. Uh, one of them I've, we've already talked about at length, which is how do the Jews relate to Paul's gospel? Uh, another one is, are the children of God really truly secure? This is a question we're going to wrestle with. Because Paul's already asserted in Romans chapter 8, if we're God's children... We're secure in His love. Is that true? Or does, in fact, the experience of Israel raise questions about that? <clears throat> and then, as we move towards the end of the section, we will begin to deal with the nasty question of anti-Semitism. 
Is there a basis in Scripture for anti-Semitism? And uh, many commentators believe, and I think there's merit to it, that there was uh, there were elements of anti-Semitism present in the Roman Church. And so, what Paul, one of the things that Paul is dealing with here, is the question of the attitude of the Gentiles towards the Jews, and we will confront that very directly, particularly when we get to chapter eleven. Uh, so. This is all background information. Just one more thing I'd like to say, uh, one more area I'd like to cover, and that is, as we go through these chapters and as we confront these various verses and various difficult parts as well as the parts that aren't so difficult, what we need to do is remember this hermeneutic principle that we've always harp on is the issue of context. So with any given verse or thought or expression throughout these chapters, uh, they've often been subject to what we call proof texting. Proof texting is uh, it's kind of a derogatory term, generally speaking. And proof texting is the, is the thought of uh, somebody who's got a, a kind of a theological axe to grind. They've got some point they want to make. And so they just kind of go through Scripture and they pick at uh, what appears to be at random various verses which stand kind of by themselves and they'll just quote this verse here and this verse over here and this verse up here as proof texts to prove uh, to prove their theological point. Well, actually, I kind of think that there is, a, there is some degree of merit in proof texting because there are some texts which do prove our point. Okay? The difficulty is when we are using text to prove our points and we're lifting them out of their context. A favorite example of mine is the verse from Psalms when the psalmist says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It's a great verse. And, and we often use it to talk about, you know, we get up in the morning and we, you know, you can kind of drag it to the sink, you know, and you're leaning over the sink and you're just trying to, stand, you know, prop yourself up and you remind yourself, this is the day the Lord has made, you know. Well, that's a true principle, certainly is true, and we could establish that from any number of places in Scripture, but that's not what that verse is talking about. That verse is talking about the day of resurrection. The day Christ rose from the dead. This is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So we can take a verse and lift it out of its context and support our particular point, but that isn't necessarily what the verse is trying to say. Well, we want to avoid that in Romans 9 through 11. We want to avoid taking passages and just using them kind of as proof texts independent of their context. So what that means is that that as we look at each part of Romans 9 through 11, as we want to do with any passage of Scripture, we want to ensure that we interpret each one in, the, in its immediate context. So when we look at a verse, we don't want to just look at that one verse by itself, but we want to look at the verses around it. What do the verses around it say? Because it, it only really, its real interpretation may have wide application, but its main interpretation has to do with how it fits in the verses around it. And then secondly, we want to interpret in the context of all of 9 through 11. And I want to just lift it out of what Paul is trying to accomplish here in, verses, in chapters 9 through 11. He has something he's trying to do, and we need to keep that in mind. We need to keep it interpreted, as I suggested, in the context of all of Romans. I don't think Romans 9, by 11 stand, 9 through 11 stands by itself. But it stands within the context of the whole of Romans. So we will ask ourselves, as we go through and look at various parts of Romans 9 through 11, we'll say, how does this fit with what he said back in chapter 4? Or what he said back in chapter 2? Okay. So we'll want to think about the context of all of Romans. And then, of course, as someone has widely, wisely said, the best commentator on Scripture is Scripture itself. We will want to understand each passage of Romans 9 through 11 in the context of all of Scripture. One of the difficulties that I have with some of the things that people do with these chapters 
is they make them say things that run directly counter to the things that God says in other places. Clearly, Romans 9-11 through must be consistent with the rest of Scripture. So, that's a lot of groundwork, okay? But I just want to let you know where I'm coming from and where we're going. And, and you can hold me to these principles and I'll try to hold you to these principles as we go forward. But I believe these are the principles that should guide our thinking. Paul starts out in verse 1 and he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Interesting introduction to a subject. (laughs) Why does Paul start out this way? I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. (laughs) My conscience is bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit. Why does he start out like that? Okay. Uh, Yeah. He's going to say some things that some people who are reading what he says might have reason to question his sincerity. Why would that be? Exactly. They, the Jew, many Jews believe that Paul has just abandoned them. That he, he doesn't care anymore about the Jews. He doesn't care that he's a Jew. And, and so this accusation has been leveled against him. And so Paul is about to deal with something that is very dear to his heart. Very meaningful to him. And yet he suspects that there are some out there who aren't inclined to take him seriously because God has called him to a ministry to the Gentiles. And yeah, he'll go into a city and when he first goes into a city, the first place he goes is to the synagogue. But boy, <clears throat> the first sign of opposition in the synagogue, he just walks out and goes out on the city square and starts preaching to the Gentiles. He really doesn't care about the Jews anymore. He's written off the whole thing about the Jews. And what Paul is trying to say here is he said, listen, these things that I am about to set before you in chapters 9, 10, 11, these things cut very close to home to me. Because we're talking about my kinsmen. We're talking about my brothers according to the flesh. And although because of the ministry that God has called me to, it may appear to you that I don't care about the Jews anymore. That that I've just written them off. He says, the fact is, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, we're going to think about that for a minute here. Just a second. We're going to think about it a little bit. Why does Paul have this great sorrow, this unceasing grief? But, but he identifies this tremendous sorrow. So, under the facade, maybe facade is the wrong word, but under the, what we see up front about Paul, where he's out there and he's preaching to the Gentiles and he's all excited about what God is doing to Gentiles and he's rejoicing in people getting saved among the Gentiles. and God's starting up all these churches. Behind all of that, what we don't always see, but is always there, is Paul's relentless sorrow and Paul's relentless grief over his own people. He's not written them off. He's not indifferent to their condition. In fact, it's so intense, he says in verse 3, he says, I could wish, or the word there is actually pray, I could pray. My sorrow is so great that I could imagine myself praying that I myself would be accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's a pretty remarkable thing to say. Now, Paul isn't saying that he actually prays that, but he could, he could imagine himself praying that given the intensity of his sorrow over their current condition. Now, he's not alone in that. 
Remember Moses' prayer? When Israel had sinned against God and God was getting ready to come down and wipe out the nation there in the wilderness? And uh, Exodus 32, and what did, Paul, what did Moses pray? You remember? He says, God, if you won't forgive them, then blot me out. Blot me out. Now, why didn't God do that? Well, God didn't do it because it wouldn't work. The psalmist says, "No man can by any man's redeem, no man can by any means redeem his brother, and he should cease striving forever." Psalm one forty-seven. I, I, I don't have anything I can offer you folks. I can't redeem you. Uh, you know, I could imagine. Well, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. But like Paul, I could imagine praying that, wishing that, but there's already been a sacrifice made, folks. There's already been a sacrifice offered for the Jews. There's already been an atonement made for the Jews. There's already someone who's been accursed. There's already been there's already someone who has been separated from God. And that's Christ. The problem is not that the sacrifice has not been made. The problem is that the sacrifice has not been appropriated. But the, the significance of Paul's remark is, is that it reveals, and the reason he shares it with us, is it reveals the intensity with which he is moved in his heart of hearts over the condition of Israel his kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he describes them, he says, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the promises and whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And so he describes them. And, and as I was thinking about Paul's description here, a couple things came to my mind. And with these thoughts, we'll wrap it up for today. <clears throat> Have any of you ever had the opportunity to visit ancient ruins? Any of you ever, you know, like... Like the pyramids or the Colosseum or, you know, or the Inca, you know, whatever in South America or stuff. Okay. If you're kind of into history like I am, those things are really cool. Yeah, I like going to places like that, right? I had the opportunity when we were in Russia. I've told this story before, I'm sure. But when we were in Russia, we went way down to southern Russia uh, to visit a city there called Durban, and it's right on the southern border of Russia today, okay? It's just, I mean, it's right on the border, okay? And there's a fortress. There's an old ruined fortress there. The Caucasus Mountains come down. They come all the way over from the Black Sea to the Red, to the uh, Caspian Sea, and, and they end right there at the Caspian Sea, and they just kind of slope out to the sea, and there's this fortress, this old fortress built up there. And, uh, and it's been built and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Okay. And it's up there. And they have this fortress. And then they have this wall that extends from this fortress all the way down the mountain and out into the Caspian Sea. Well, used to. The Caspian Sea is now receded and so it doesn't go into the sea. But it used to go into the sea. And the reason for this fortress and this wall was to keep the Persians out of Russia. Okay. And this fortress was first built in about 500 B.C. Okay. So we're down here and we're visiting the ruins of this fortress. And like I said, it's been built and destroyed and built and destroyed. You know. But down at the bottom of it are the original stones, huge stones, you know. The huge stones that were placed there for back about 500 B.C. And I got out of the car and I walked over and I, and, I, and I put my hand on that stone. And I just stood there and I thought, I, my hand is on a stone that was placed here to keep the Persians out when the children of Israel 
were captives in Persia. I may not face you, but that sends you know chills down my spine. I'm touching that thing, you know. Oh, sorry, ladies. <laughs> yeah, those old ruins—they're pretty curious to us. We went up in the fortress. I'm getting a little off track. We went up in the fortress higher up, and there's this hole in the ground. They got some rebar over it to keep people from falling in it now. But there's this hole in the ground and it's lined with bricks and stuff. And so I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, oh, this is a cistern, you know, like they store water in it. But our guide explains to us, no, this is not a cistern. This used to be a church. A first century church. It actually used to be above ground. Now the dirt, so now it looks like a cistern in the ground, but it used to be an above ground church. Oh, that's pretty cool. First century Christians worshipped here. A couple months later, I was here at home in Norman. I was preparing for my uh, Sunday morning lesson and I was studying about the disciples. And I learned that Bartholomew was probably martyred in Derbent. Talk about chills down your spine. But I was actually standing there looking down into the remains of a church in which the Apostle Bartholomew may have preached Christ crucified. Those things are pretty exciting to us if you're into history. If you go see the, the various you know, ruins around the world. But what struck me as I was thinking about that yesterday was their curiosity to us. In many cases, they're amazing. We look at the Colosseum, we have this pretty amazing structure. But what if they're your history? What if you're an Italian looking at the Colosseum? What if you're an Egyptian looking at the pyramids? What if you're a modern-day Inca who are pretty much second-class citizens in South America now. What if you're an Inca looking at those Inca ruins? Puts it in a different context, doesn't it? Because then you go, this is what we once were, and we are no longer. This is what we once were, and we are no longer. I think that's what Paul is doing here, folks. I think as Paul lists here all these great things, that we are the adoption of sons. And when he talks about the adoptions of sons, he doesn't mean it in the same sense that he meant it in Romans chapter 8 when he's talking about the new covenant adoption of sons. Under the Old Testament adoption of sons, the Jews, that was a reference rather to their uniqueness among the nations. So it doesn't have the connotations of the new covenant promises, but rather has that idea of how God has selected them for His chosen people out of all the nations. They had this unique status with God. The adoption of sons, the glory, the actual physical, visible presence of God, the Shekinah glory, the cloud of smoke, the, cloud, the, the pillar of fire, the, the Shekinah glory over the cherubim, above the Ark of the Covenant, the physical, physical presence of God, visible physical presence of God among them. These are the things they had. but no longer. And so it's like Paul here is looking back at the ruins of the greatest civilization. You see, as Americans, we have, we have a tremendous heritage as Americans, don't we? We have a tremendous heritage. And as we look back and we read American history, there are points of American history that are just awe-inspiring. Are they not? We read about our early fathers and we read about the struggle for religious liberty and religious freedom and we read about the whole idea of freedom and democracy and those were not unique or they were not, they were not first uh, birthed here in America. They have a long history to them. But America was the first country that actually took it and, 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 and made it something that would work on a large, massive scale, and then we exported it to the entire world like no other nation has done. 
and we have our Declaration of Independence, and we have our we have these remarkable documents that many, many other nations and many other people have turned back on and they've looked at and they've studied as they've tried to shape their own free democracies. This is our heritage, folks. We look back on the last century and we see how Americans have shed their blood to free billions of people across the face of the globe. This is our heritage. And it's a great heritage. I honestly think we're, we're in a position now where we're losing it, but, but it is a great heritage and it is a precious heritage. But friends, it does not light a candle to Israel's heritage. With all the great things that God has done, and I believe God has done, in our history and through America, it does not light a candle to these things we read about in Romans 9. We're talking about how God has selected these people. And He actually was visibly, physically, visibly present to them as they walked through the wilderness. God fed them out of heaven with manna. They had the law. Not a law, not a great law that a bunch of people got down and wrote, but a law they actually heard dictated to them from the top of the mountain by God Himself. With all of our great heritage and heritage, we can't light a candle to Israel. And in fact, that's what the psalmist says when he says he has not dealt thus with any nation. Is it any wonder that Paul is brokenhearted? Because he's now looking at the ruins of that once great nation. Has God forsaken them? Is God's word true? What happened to those covenants? What happened to those promises? Those are the questions we have to answer. And we have to answer them correctly or our gospel fails. That's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. Okay?